This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen. Head of Northeast Operations for Ringler, and I'm glad you could join us again today. Remember to catch all our Ringler radio shows from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or from legaltalknetwork.com, or even uh, even better, why don't you download them from iTunes right onto your iPod, and you can walk around all day and, and listen to Ringler radio as you're doing your uh, your daily chores. I think that's pretty cool. Well, today on Ringler radio, we're going to discuss how the state of the economy has affected railroad litigation. We'll cite some real-life cases, and then see how the structured settlement can actually make a difference uh, when you're trying to resolve these cases. And joining me as my co-host today is Zach Leonard. Zach's our settlement annuity specialist in the New York City office, and Zach's been involved in the structured settlement industry basically his entire professional career, where he's focused on medical malpractice, general liability, and the environmental sector. He's also been involved with workers' comp and some reinsurance. And uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you, Larry. It's good to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here with me. And uh, our special guest today is attorney John Jablonski from the firm Goldberg Sagala LLP in Buffalo, New York. John is a partner of the firm, concentrates his practice on commercial and business litigation, construction litigation, product liability, and of course, railroad litigation. And uh, John is uh, one of the premier defense trial attorneys up in that Buffalo area, especially when it comes to the railroad litigation. And that's why we have you on the show here today, John. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here, Larry. Great. All right, John, why don't you uh, begin today by telling our listeners a little bit about railroad litigation in a general sense, and uh, what makes it a little different from other types of litigation? Sure. Starting in the general sense, railroads are just large and small corporations. So for the most part, they face the same sort of litigation challenges that any other company uh, publicly or non-publicly traded in the United States faces. What gives the, an added twist to railroad litigation is it's a heavily regulated industry. Um, railroads uh, started out uh, more or less as utilities uh, back in the uh, middle 1800s um, and then uh, helped uh, the United States uh, go through the Industrial Revolution, obviously. And railroads really um, came into uh, the mainstream um, in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Um, so railroads... Um, are uh, all across the United States. Uh, they're of all shapes and sizes. Um, there's railroads that are contained wholly within an industry, um, like a say a, a Ford plant or something like that. Uh, there's also smaller railroads that would uh, take cargo from that plant uh, to a, a medium-sized railroad. Uh, that smaller railroad may only have a couple of uh, miles of track, and then the medium railroad may have 20 or 30 miles of track, and then they'll connect. Uh, to a larger uh, system of um, interstate commerce, uh, which would be Class One railroads, and, and they may have uh, hundreds of, if not thousands, of miles of track and interconnect with each other. So, with respect to litigation, you know, they'll have their contract claims, they'll have uh, employee uh, injuries um, because their office is more or less mobile and they're 
transporting goods. They may intersect with uh, individuals who are driving automobiles or trucks, uh, and so you may have a litigation resulting from collisions. I think intersect um, means crash, yeah, people, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, and those are probably the types of cases that people hear about the most. Uh, but you also have uh, cases where someone may wander onto the property and, and either fall and injure themselves or get hit uh, by moving equipment, a train or an engine, um, and be seriously injured or, or killed even. Um, so they have all of those uh, issues facing them because of the just the nature of their business. Um, and then uh, railroad litigation often requires a specialized knowledge because there's a wide array of federal statutes that uh, directly apply to the railroad. So issues like preemption come in uh, to play. Um, so cool. it's kind of the, the overview of uh, railroad uh, and the problems that they face. So right now, as we're dealing with an economy that's in crisis, um, how has the railroad industry, how has this affected the railroad industry and, in turn, railroad litigation? Yeah, actually, the railroads are feeling the, the heat of the economy right now. Uh, traffic on the railroads is down um, across the country, much like the rest of our economy. Uh, so they're they're seeing it in that respect. It hasn't been catastrophic um, like the financial industry. Uh, there's still uh, the need to move coal um, and other products, um, but in general, um, it's uh, the traffic is down. Uh, railroads uh, in the railroad industry, I think, uh, is, is in a good position to benefit from the economic stimulus plan. Um, many railroad uh, projects are run um, with um, private and public funds in a partnership. Um, so there's a, a number of projects that are underway that are related to the intermodal industry, which would be, if you've ever seen those square containers that are on trucks or maybe double stacked on a train, uh, there's a couple of multi-billion dollar projects underway to uh, heighten the corridor uh, of various transportation uh, areas to allow double stack trailers to go through uh, there's been uh, a concerted effort to build intermodal facilities um, so that uh, you would have uh, a convenient location to offload a ship uh, and then onload to a railroad uh, uh, car um, and then also in the interior of the, the country to offload from a railroad car and then onto a truck for delivery. So you have one seamless container movement from uh, some point outside the United States uh, into the interior and vice versa. Uh, so uh, you know, railroads are certainly um, instituting uh, cost savings measures um, and doing their best to cut their costs just like any other industry in the United States. And, and that, uh, from my personal perspective, hasn't really affected the the claims process or the claims handling strategy for for all types of litigation. Uh, I know that as a as a trend, litigation against the railroads is down, and that could be to a number of factors. One of them um, is increased safety on the railroads as well. Let's talk a little bit about for those people, especially in our audience who aren't as familiar with railroads per se. You mentioned before there was something called the Class One railroad. What's the difference between a Class One railroad and other types of rail, other class two or three railroads. Tell me about that. Sure. The classifications of railroads are set by the Surface Transportation Board, 
um, which is a uh, federal entity um, that, along with the uh, Federal Railroad Administration, actually uh, governs the railroads. Um, and there are quite a few statutes, just to go back to what you said about maintenance, there's quite a few federal requirements for the upkeep and maintenance of, of their roads. And uh, those uh, classifications can directly affect the type of regulations that are in play um, to govern the railroads and how they maintain their track and um, operate safely and the types of uh, training that they may have to have for their employees. A Class 1 railroad is a railroad that has, at this current time, over $250 million in revenue. And there's really just a short list of Class 1 railroads in the United States. Companies like uh, Norfolk Southern, CSX Transportation, Union Pacific out west, uh, the Burlington Northern, Santa Fe Railroad, uh, Canadian National, Canadian Pacific, and Kansas City Southern are the ones that come to mind. Then below that, there's a Class 2 railroad, and that's any railroad that has over 20 and a half million dollars of annual revenue up to the $250 million mark. And then below that, uh, any railroad that has operating uh, revenue of below $20 million, that's a class three railroad. What about, what about, what about uh, a railroad that's losing money like Amtrak? What class are they in? <laughs> <laughs> They're in their own class. They're in their own class. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because a lot of people look at railroads and they see two, two different types. When they see passenger railroads like an Amtrak, they see freight railroads like that, that cause their automobile to get stopped at crossings all day long, uh, and I think the I think the the classes of railroads you're talking about really have to do with those freight railroads. Aren't we Aren't we Aren't we right about that? No, that's exactly right. And and uh, the passenger railroads uh, come under a different set of regulations, um, but they also operate for the most part over the the actual tracks of the freight lines um, in a cooperative arrangement. Um, so uh, when we're talking about maintenance, um, the maintenance uh, regulations will apply for the most part to the freight railroads, and then the passenger railroads will operate over them. Interesting. Well, one of the things that happens a lot uh, that we see from time to time is these so-called trespass claims. Tell us about the trespass-type claim. How, are you de- how do you deal with that trespass-type claim today in the railroad litigation arena? No, that's that's a very good question. I think, as I said earlier, most people look at um, the railroad as uh, something that may inconvenience them when they're stopped at a crossing. Um, so, and also, uh, the crossing accidents um, seem to be the ones that get the most headlines. Uh, they're immediate. The news are out there um, very quickly um, to get get the footage of the destroyed car. Um, it seems to hit home with people because they cross-crossings all of the time. But there is a whole class of claims that relate to people going on to the railroad property. As some of your listeners may may know, um, the the railroad uh, property is extensive. Um, It's often rural, so it may be uh, inviting for recreational purposes, uh, for snowmobiles, for uh, motorcycles. People who go hunting will often um, walk along tracks. Um, so I've had some cases um, where uh, hunters were injured um, walking along tracks and struck by a train. So uh, when the uh, person comes on the property, whether it be in a yard or uh, in a track situation with whatever they're doing and, and they come into contact with a train, uh, that's typically characterized as a trespass injury. Um, in New York specifically, 
the rules of trespass um, have been eliminated, so it turns into more of an al- analysis of what was reasonable under the circumstances for the railroad in that particular situation. Also, uh, there will be an argument over whether or not the railroad had a duty to fence in a particular location. And in some areas, there's statutes that apply to the duty to fence, um, and in other areas, there there's not. And we, my clients, we generally take the position, for the most part, that the railroad has the right of way, um, that certainly the dangers are open and obvious, and that we don't have a duty to uh, to fence in, in most uh, all areas. Um, so then uh, handling that sort of case uh, then turns into, like handling any other case, with the overlay that we've talked about thus far of the statutes that apply, um, whether there's arguments that the, the railroad failed to sound its horn, that the railroad uh, wasn't reflectorized or visible enough. Uh, there's issues with respect to whether or not there was a path in a particular area, which would put the railroad on notice that there's a that there's the public in that area. Uh, other times, trespassers and in, in many states are actually arrested or charged by the local authorities for being on the property when they're not supposed to be. Um, in some jurisdictions, the trespass uh, trespasser who's not invited onto the land makes uh, for a very good defense for the railroads, um, and their duty um, will be less um, to that certain individual who's on their property without their knowledge. Do you ever get so the, Do you ever get involved in uh, attractive nuisance uh, doctrine on, on, in some of these trespass claims where the railroads might leave uh, leave things there for kids to be, let's say, fooling with that they shouldn't be? Well, it's, it's actually a very common argument um, that um, plaintiffs use against the railroads mm-hmm. with respect to the type of equipment that they have. Um, all of us growing up at one time or the other had model model trains or under our Christmas trees exactly. or in, in the neighborhood. So that is definitely an argument that, that comes up. Um, and once again, it, it goes to uh, the duty to fence at times, uh, the duty to post warnings. Many railroads uh, participate in a program called Operation Lifesaver, where they provide training to local schools uh, to try and uh, make children aware of the dangers involved in the uh, the railroad cars and the, the railroad uh, engines uh, and that you could very easily be injured um, climbing on, under, or being near the tracks. Um, another problem that uh, often faces uh, a trespasser is the inability to understand how wide the train and their cars are. You know, they think that the tracks are as wide as the railroad car when really beyond the tracks from anywhere from five to 10 feet, depending on the type of car that's involved, uh, you you're, you have a path being cut by the equipment. So someone that may be standing on a bridge or standing near the train tracks think that they're in a safe location, but really um, they're setting themselves up for danger and uh, something could be protruding from the car and come along and and injure someone very easily. Good. Thank you. John, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the history behind the Federal Employers uh, Liability Act and how it kind of comes into play today in cases? Sure. Um, I I haven't mentioned the Federal Employers Liability Act uh, mainly because we've been talking about railroads in general. But the Federal Employers Liability Act is actually pretty interesting because back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the railroad industry employed millions of people across the United States. 
If you were injured at work, there was no such thing as workers' compensation. Um, you know, maybe your family would be paid something, but for the most part, you were out of a job and, and you became uh, someone looking for um, help from perhaps a local church organization. Imagine a situation where coupling meant that one guy was on one uh, on one car and the other guy was on the other car, and as the cars came together, someone physically dropped a pin in between the two cars. Uh, then you, you also had boilers, um, and they were prone to boiler explosions. So railroad work 100 years ago was very hazardous. Um, in many parts of the country, if you were 1% negligent, you weren't allowed to recover anything against um, the person that you were suing. I was always going to say it was the old contributory negligence uh, defense. No, that's right. So, so back in 1908, with this federal statute, um, uh, it allowed uh, a worker to sue sue his employer um, with comparative negligence. So, the negligence of the worker wouldn't eliminate his claim. So, that was a pretty big deal a uh, hundred years ago, and it kind of opened the door for other states to enact similar statutes. And then uh, employers were finding that they were subject to liability. Um, and the landscape was changing. So the workers' compensation scheme was born to create a pool of uh, insurance money to allow for the for workers to recover. Well, this old statute has basically survived unchanged for 100 years, and railroad employees are allowed to sue their employer. And they have to show that the employer's negligence contributed in whole or in part to their injury. And there was an old case back um, in 1957 uh, that the Supreme Court of the United States decided it was Rogers uh, versus Missouri uh, Pacific, I believe. And in that case, they used the terminology, however slight, um, that if the railroad's negligence caused the injury, however slight, that the railroad employee would be entitled to recover. And you know, we could do a whole show on the Rogers holding, and I won't go into it too <laughs> deeply. Um, but recently, that was followed up by a Supreme Court uh, decision in Sorrell versus Norfolk Southern that said that this, whatever the standard is, if you're applying, if a if a jury instruction is applying this, however slight language, uh, that the same standard should apply to the contributory negligence as well. So if the uh, employee's negligence contributed, however slight, to, to his own injuries, then the jury should be allowed to consider equally um, the causation um, uh, comparatively, uh, that is, um, for, for that particular case. So uh, I did a little bit of research before our show, and there's been about 27 attempts over the, the past 100 years to change the uh, FELA uh, to a workers' compensation system, and it just hasn't come to fruition um, Folks can speculate as to whether the plaintiff's bar is protecting um, their ability to collect on uh, their fee on injury claims or whether the railroads are uh, happy setting some money aside um, for a future claim and doing their best to uh, to minimize their exposure from claims. But nonetheless, uh, it, the statute literally remains unchanged for 100 years. And there's also components uh, to the statute. There's the Safety Appliance Act, um, and then there's a Locomotive Inspection Act, and the Safety Appliance Act requires that the, the locomotive cars have certain 
uh, safety features, and then the Locomotive Inspection Act requires that the locomotive engines have certain safety features. And a plaintiff uh, who's an employee just merely has to demonstrate that the car or the locomotive doesn't comply with that particular statute, and then they have strict liability against the railroad. It's still a Federal Employers Liability Act case, but it has the added component of the noncompliance with these two acts that we just talked about. Well, you know, FELA has been around, as you said, for uh, over 100 years. It it doesn't look like it's going to change. As you mentioned, uh, there are competing interests there, but uh, at least there's some certainty to the to the way cases are handled, people are used to the way they're handled, and there seems to have been a cottage industry arose out of that and, and around that. So uh, I don't foresee that this thing uh, is going to change. Do you, John? Uh, no, not, not at all. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's not going to go by the, the way of, I think, uh, asbestos litigation where <laughs> people thought it would change, but it hasn't. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty certain that, uh, at least in my lifetime, uh, I'll be a, a railroad defense lawyer um, uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, there's some job security in that. So let's let's go ahead and take a quick break right now, and then let's come back with some final thoughts from our guest, Attorney John Jablonski. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Wrangler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Wrangler Radio from Wrangler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years at one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. We're glad you joined us. I'm Larry Cohen, your host. And uh, Zach Leonard here is my co-host, and we're talking with our special guest, Attorney John Jablonski from the firm Goldberg Sagala in Buffalo, New York, about railroad litigation. John, tell us about the investigative process that goes into defending a railroad case. How does that all happen? It's a, it's actually pretty interesting um, from my perspective anyways, because of everything that we've been talking about so far um, with the kind of the the public awareness of many sorts of cases, um, you have a lot of uh, entities that uh, show up and will partake in an investigation of um, a railroad accident. And if we use, um, say, a a crossing accident, you'll have uh, the railroad's own operating department. Um, They'll come in and they'll try to figure out um, why the accident happened. Um, was there a, a human failure? Was there a signal failure? Was there an equipment failure? What what can they learn to, um, to better tackle the situation in the future and to improve their operation and safety? Then the claims department um, may be out at the accident site um, 
looking uh, at the accident from a similar perspective to the railroad operating department, but also with the knowledge that um, a serious accident may result in a lawsuit. So they're they're out there investigating from the claims perspective. Then you may have uh, plaintiff's attorneys um, actually may um, have uh, a private investigator go out within moments of an accident, um, and they may have an accident reconstructionist. Um, a firm like mine may be called, uh, and we will go out to a, a serious accident situation, and we may have our own investigator or an accident reconstructionist. The local police um, are often involved, and the state police are often involved, and they'll take lots of photos, measurements, and do a complete workup um, as they would with any other traffic accident. Uh, the Federal Railroad Administration, the FRA, they may send uh, their own investigators out to an accident. Kind of think of, uh, we had, unfortunately, an um, awful plane crash in Buffalo recently, but if you think of um, how the uh, FAA comes out and investigates. It's a very similar situation, so the FRA will be out there. Uh, the Department of Transportation or the National Transportation Safety Board may have a representative come out to a significant incident. Uh, and then also uh, the local um, Department of Transportation may have someone come out and take a look at the incident. Um, and from time to time, someone from uh, the employees union may be out uh, taking some notes um, mm -hmm. and observing everything that's going on. So as you can imagine it, uh, a significant railroad accident becomes a pretty busy place with a lot going on. So all of those accident materials um, depending on the the agency and depending on the ability to obtain those materials through a Freedom of Information Act request, um, will all come into my office and come onto my desk, and then I have to start sorting through them uh, like a like a, a deck of cards. Also, an interesting, recent, very recent development are locomotive um, cameras. Um, that um, are mounted on the lead engine of the locomotive that actually view the track up ahead. So if someone goes around a gate um, or is unfortunately committing suicide, it's captured on a video, mm. um, and it's, uh, it's very stark evidence of exactly what the crew saw at the time that the accident was unfolding. So I, I'll go through all of those materials and analyze them, um, see if there's any supplemental investigation that we need to do to fill in any any holes that I see as far as information that I would like to know um, and gather all that and, and conduct an analysis. If there are any other parties that should be sued that may be at fault for the incident. So um, it, that all comes to bear and you can get a very good understanding of the case and the potential value of the case right up front. Well, it sounds like an expensive proposition to really build this case to its to its final trial setting. What about trying to resolve these cases earlier to try to not only save money, but also to maybe come up with a, a resolution that that's fair for all sides? And in doing that, how does a structured settlement play into that? How, how have you used structured settlements? Sure. Um, I'll try and I'll try and get to all the parts there, but if I forget one, just let me know. Um, the, the, the kind of comprehensive early evaluation of the case can be critical to saving uh, a client money, um, whether it be 
frankly, on the plaintiff side or on the, the railroad side from a defense perspective. As you can imagine, if you're going to go out and actually start deposing all of the people that added to the puzzle as far as their investigation, all of the people um, at the railroad that would be involved in the movement of a train um, from its origin, through inspections, through maintenance, uh, through training, through everything, it can be a, a lengthy proposition. It can be an expensive proposition. But uh, from my perspective and experience, at times, maybe an unneeded proposition. And if uh, the, the value can be understood by the parties um, and an analysis can be done on uh, potential jury verdicts, on prior settlements, uh, maybe prior settlements even involving the parties, so that a good valuation of the case can be determined, then I can go out and bring a structured settlement person in and then make my client's dollar go farther. And the, the knowledge of the structure company on creative ways to make sure that the plaintiff's counsel is paid, that the plaintiff receives a um, annuity over time, and that the cost of it all is something that my client can live with is really immeasurable. And if I can bring someone in at a critical early stage of a case, I can save a client hundreds of thousands of dollars of transaction costs. So you know, I, I think it's pretty clear to see that involving a knowledgeable structure person early on in a case can really have a huge benefit to, to my client. Well, I think Zach's available, to be honest with you. Right, Zach? <laughs> Always. <laughs> Zach, you have a, a case you wanted to ask about. Yeah, John, uh, you have a death case right now involving a 50-year-old man who was uh, run over in the yard and his uh, daughter is the sole beneficiary. Can you talk a little bit about that case and how what we've talked about today kind of is involved in that? It's actually a very good real-life example. While you know, I can't go into much more of the case than, than you just did, um, that particular case has one, you know, one beneficiary, um, and under the FELA that we've talked about, the 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 award uh, that would be potentially available is really limited to the employee's contribution economically to the family. Under the FELA, there isn't a monetary value for the particular loss of a life. You know, although the plaintiff's attorneys um, certainly stress that at trial, um, so you have kind of a finite economic picture. And then uh, based on the, the individual's age, you know, we would calculate um, what their work-life expectancy is, um, how much longer they would have worked, and compare that to the daughter's expectation of income over a period of time. Um, and, and she may have been out of the home um, prior uh, to him concluding his career. Um, and then take a, a look at uh, pain and suffering uh, um, that may be attended to that particular accident. So we can develop very early on based on a lot of information that's available from the investigation materials, um, just what the picture is and the potential liability picture is. So a case like that, um, uh, having a structure person involved, we can go to um, to the plaintiff's attorney and the daughter and, and try to meet some of their goals for providing for her over the course of of her life that you know she believes her father uh, would have provided to her, and, and hopefully make it um, lucrative enough to her to her um, to to allow um, my client to save the expense of uh, protracted litigation and trial, um, and and 
I'm hopeful that that that'll work out for us. Well, we all we all hope it resolves itself uh, to everybody's satisfaction. One more thing, uh, John, before we close, tell us about uh, some some of the cutting edge issues that you're dealing with now. I, I understand toxic exposure is a, is an area where a lot of the claims are arising. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, uh, there's there's kind of two things that I want to talk about very briefly. One is that uh, the railroad population is an aging population. Uh, so the typical railroad claim that I see as an employee that's uh, north of 50 years old, they've kind of lived out their railroad career in their um, facing retirement and, and they're injured um, on the job and now they have a claim um, under the FELA. Um, based on the kind of lesser burden that a plaintiff's attorney has to bring a claim uh, based on this 100-year-old statute, uh, plaintiff's counsel um, has gotten fairly creative um, with uh, the types of claims that they bring. So they'll bring claims based on um, alleged diesel exhaust exposure from being in the cab of the locomotive over time. They'll bring a claim based on uh, asbestos exposure. They may bring a claim based on solvent exposure um, if someone was exposed to solvent, welding fumes, um, other types of claims based on uh, one is called whole body vibration, uh, alleging that the engineer in a locomotive cab over the course of his life traveling over the tracks is subjected to excessive vibration, which causes an alleged deterioration of um, of his back and leading to health problems. Um, there may be uh, repetitive injury claims um, based on walking on ballast, use of certain equipment. So there's really... If, if if you can think of a way someone can be exposed to a substance, I've probably seen a claim related to it. Um, or if you can think of a way that someone may be injured, um, kind of in the from my from my perspective in the normal course of their work, uh, there's probably a claim being brought about it. Well, it's never a dull moment. There's always going to be something new coming down the pike to keep us all doing what we do for quite a while. John, if someone wanted to get to know more about what you do in railroad litigation, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. They can, they can go to our website, which is uh, goldbergsagala.com. Um, if they're listening to this, uh, you know, my information will be at your website. Uh, we publish a quarterly newsletter that's focused on railroad litigation uh, specifically, talks about many of the issues that we talked about today with preemption and otherwise. Um, and they're more than welcome to send me an email, um, which my email address is uh, Jay Jablonski at GoldbergSegala.com. And Segala is S-E-G-A-L-L-A. Correct. I, I had a problem with that when I first heard it. And, <laughs> Z- and, Z- and Zach, uh, if someone wants to talk to you, how do they do that? Uh, you can either give me a call in the New York office here, which is 212-513-1441, or you can contact me at uh, Z Leonard at ringlerassociates.com. Well, that's great. Of course, uh, all of our Ringler Associates can be contacted at ringlerassociates.com. I'm even in there. And if you look hard enough, I think you can even find pictures of us, Zach. I think they're already in there. I'm sure they're somewhere. There you go. Although I don't change mine too often. (laughs) In the meantime, I want to thank John Jablonski and you, Zach, for co-hosting today. Hope our listeners enjoyed the show. Remember, you can download those shows, all of our shows, at ringlerassociates.com. And again, go to iTunes. You'll find them there as well, or legaltalknetwork.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thank you, John. And now go out and make it a great day.
Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.